episode of sweat and grime you've got brian matt and rick in the studio and on the phone i'm delighted to say we have herb Sargent with us today how are you sir i'm doing well how are you uh doing great thank thanks you so for much joining. for yeah, yeah thanks absolutely. for coming on actually i flew over i'm right outside your office i mean oh geez oh, i mean we got him in person signal <laughs> <laughs> so could you for those not familiar i mean you're actually a pretty big name in the industry but for those not familiar could you give us a little history on Herb Sargent. Okay, well, uh, you know, we're kind of more, more or less a Northeast-based contractor, although we do have a uh, an office down just north of Richmond, Virginia, and Ashland, Virginia. Um, and so it's, it's a little bit of a sordid history. When I say sordid, it's kind of uh, not bad. It's uh, our company will turn 100 years old in, in four years. Wow. Impressive. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, that was, uh, so the company initially started by, by my grandfather who was, who was also herb uh, back in 1926 and he uh, he did a lot of work in mostly maine uh, got involved in a lot of highway work a lot of airport work uh, i mean started the typical story you know started with nothing yeah uh, when he was a kid he sold mm. sawdust uh, from his dad's sawmill for 25 cents a wagon load wow. and there was no electricity in those times where he lived. And, and, uh, so that was used to pack the ice boxes to insulate the ice boxes. Interesting. That was his first, yeah. First commercial venture. That uh, but he, you know, he wild. went on to build, uh, in Maine, either pave or grade about two thirds of the interstate in Maine. Wow. And, uh, yeah, by about the uh, early seventies, my dad, Jim, Covers president and my my uncle Ralph Leonard was was also in, involved in the company and uh, then in 1988 they sold the company to a, to a much larger company from Paris France overseas and, uh, huh yeah yeah this company uh, there's a there's a funny backstory if we have time to to get to it oh the, we got plenty oh, time. we got time <laughs> uh, we uh, so I was not involved in the ownership at all I, I was an employee there. Uh, I'd started full-time, I guess, in 1983 at 20 years old. And so they sold the company in 1988. I left in, at the end of 1991 and started my own business. Right. Uh, so now over the next decade or so, the company that bought what was then HE Sergeant, my grandfather's company, uh, was acquired. And then that company was acquired and the and fish just kept getting bigger to the point they were owned by this huge German company that then wondered why the hell they even have a tiny company in Stillwater, Maine. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> What's in so, Maine? <laughs> so they, uh, we heard rumor that they wanted to divest of it. And uh, I checked in by that time we were doing about 10, between 10 and $15 million worth of work a year in our business. And in HE Sergeant was doing about a hundred to 115 hmm. Wow, uh, and, and we checked in uh, through an intermediary, and they were interested in selling. and In uh, July of 2005, we we actually bought the company. That's wow. awesome. a crazy full circle yeah, story. That is awesome. It is, and you know, the really really cool piece about it is, my granddad by that time was 99 years old, and his house was right beside the office still, you know. And I I went over to to talk to him and and. Tell him we made the deal. He knew we were looking at it, but tell him we made the deal. And he was he was pretty heat up about it. That's yeah, pretty special. That is, what an awesome moment. Now, That's did, awesome. Did you 
inquire about purchasing it because of the revenue they were turning? Or was it something more sentimental that you just wanted to own back? No, it wasn't. It wasn't that at all. Actually, it was. It was a business decision. Um, they their business model was to go after revenue, and they had gotten into the building business. So primarily had been a highway heavy earth business, but they'd gotten into the building business over the years after they were acquired and uh, the building business did not treat them well. And so their, their parent company said, okay, you got to get out of the building business, but you got to maintain the top line revenue. So they were doing about half and half dirt and building. So they had to like double their dirt revenue, which meant, they were trying to take every single job mm-hmm. and it was beginning to impact my little company. So we, uh, you know, we kind of said, we got to make a decision here. Um, it's, we can either try to buy these guys mm. or we're going to have to cut ourselves in half and lay off half our crew. Yeah. Cause we just don't, you know, the way they were gobbling our market, it just didn't make sense. So, I didn't really relish the idea of laying off my guys. You guys, you know, know enough. It's just not. It's not fun it's at not all. It's not a fun thing to do. Nope, not at well, all. You, you build a kinship with these guys. And, you know, yeah. we try to, we really try to treat people like family. And, uh, you know, for, for a larger company, I think we do pretty well at that. But, you know, I, I just said, I'm, you know, I'm not going to lay these guys off. We're going to have to have to make a run at this. And, you know, for me personally, I'd been in business about 10, 12 years. I didn't have a big net worth. Yeah. It was not, you know, I had to go to the bank and, and borrow a lot of money. Yeah. And I pushed every chip I had in the middle of the table and, uh, you know, and made the deal. And, you know, it was the kind of thing, if it didn't work out, I was done. Yeah. Now, touch on that but, for a minute. Cause what, what is it like pushing all your chips into the middle for some of the people that, you know, maybe in the industry, but haven't become a business owner, what goes into your mind and what kind of thoughts when you push everything in as on the line? Uh, first of all, you got to be a little bit crazy to do that, right? Yeah. I think we uh, all are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> no sane person would, would take, you know, their home that their, that their family lives in and say, if this goes bad, this is going with it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so there, there, there's just a make sure you have a canvas temp, you know, that you can just yeah, travel exactly. down the road. And- you got the bed of the pickup. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but I mean, there was, there were some moments that I was, I wouldn't say I questioned it, but you know, it. I guess it, it strengthens your resolve to make mm-hmm. sure it works. Yeah. And, and so we, for instance, I talked to my grandfather before we did it and just an amazing gentleman, this guy was. And, uh, he said to me, Herb, if you evaluate this on, on the personal merits, you can make a mistake. You have to keep evaluating on business merits. Yeah. And, you know, so that that's what we try to do. We try to be really disciplined about the business merits of it. And we structured an offer that we felt gave us some, uh, some margin of safety. Um, and, you know, we knew the people, we, we knew the jobs they had. We, we could go and evaluate all the projects we did. We went to every single project and evaluated how much it would cost to finish it. Yeah. And, and so all the people saw us around and I, I hadn't been gone so long that most of them didn't know me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and, you know, I got a good feeling from people like we really hope this happens because this foreign ownership just 
wasn't going the right direction for them. <clears throat> so uh, there were there were some moments of doubt, but um, you know nobody really said. Well, I had one person, but nobody in my family said, "Yeah, you got to pull the trigger on this." Yeah, everybody was really, uh, really objective. Yeah, objective about it. And yeah, I did have one guy that's in business and a much much bigger company. Uh, now probably a two billion dollar company. Mm. Dang, it's pretty and, pretty and, decent size. Yeah, shake a yeah, stick I, at that. And I I called this guy and you know told him my thoughts and he said, "Wow, this is going to be awesome." Uh, and you know, he was probably 15 years older than me and he was, he was really helpful in helping me evaluate how to pitch the idea to the banks, to the bonding companies. And if you can, I don't know if you've ever had to get surety credit through for the bonding company, but that's, not yet. that's not a, that's not an easy thing in a contractor. If you're going to be doing public work, like airports, highways, you know, utilities, you have to be able to, to get a, performance and payment bond mm -hmm. yeah. you have to get a company that will that will stand there and back you up yeah if you end up going broke and you know when when your balance sheet is tipped sideways with debt yes. it's not that easy. <laughs> when you just loaded so, yourself to the brim <laughs> yeah right and i mean that, that is the reality of it and and uh we we took a we took an approach where we offloaded a lot of equipment and turned that into cash. And mm -hmm. that kind of helped the, helped the balance sheet ratios out. And, you know, then we ended up, you know, everybody really worked hard to, to make it go. Uh, they were pretty happy to be back family owned versus, uh, you know, versus some big mega foreign company. Yeah, yep, yeah. Over in Germany. So it, it, everybody put their shoulder to the wheel and it worked hard. You know, it wasn't me, it was them, but, um, you know, it was us putting the targets up in front of them, and they knocked them down. It was yeah. really a, a a thing to behold. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing story. Yeah, right it there. is. That's an awesome story. Just out of curiosity, what was the interest of the original French company in owning a company over here in Maine? So they had uh, they worked on like four other continents, and and they were they were in uh, South America, they were in Africa, Europe, and Asia. And, and they wanted to be, that's back in the late 80s, you know, uh, the U.S. was running kind of hot. Yeah. And they wanted to be in, in the construction business. And this company was 110 years old. All right. Uh, two brothers that, that owned it. They were family members from, you know, like great-grandsons of the original. Wow. And uh, so they wanted, a, they wanted a company and they kind of identified the Northeast as, as one of those companies. And... Uh, according to the way my dad described it, E.F. Hutton contacted him. You may not even know that name, but it was a big, big uh, investment name back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Okay. A little bit before my time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> now I'm showing my age. Right? <laughs> That's all right. It's a great story, though. You're showing your wisdom. We'll put yes, it that way. Exactly. Okay. So, uh, so we had uh, we had them call us and set up a meeting, and they came. Uh, came to Maine, came to Stillwater. I, I was no part of any of this. I was I was in the field, uh, usually about five hours away from home, and so they came and they were waiting in the in the lobby. This is the funny part. I told you I'd get to. They're waiting in the lobby, and we had a, a janitor named Louis Thibodeau. And what you may not know was the Cajuns originally were Acadians 
which were from uh, the St. John Valley. And really? I didn't realize yeah. that. That's really yeah. interesting. How the heck did they end up way down south? On the bayou? bayou? Yeah, in the bayou. Well, I'm not that old, so right. I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> but so there was, there's a big Franco-American community in Maine, uh, all, all through Maine, and these Frenchmen didn't know that. So they were talking in French, and Louis goes by, and Louis is this little short, like, uh, shaped like a, a keg of beer, you know? Yep. <laughs> and, he, and he had on his blue dickies, and he had on a white a wife beater with suspenders, and uh, he's chewing a cigar, and he's bald, and he goes by, and he's dragging a trash can behind him, and these guys are talking in French. And he stops, and he starts talking to him in French. <laughs> and that, my dad told me, that moment right there was when they decided they had to own that company. Really? So the janitor sold the company. Louis wow. Thibodeau sold the company. That is wow. amazing. That's awesome. How now, awesome. did the janitor, did Louis get a cut of that uh, That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what he got a cut of. I, you know, <laughs> we, they, no they one heard this. No one could talk, talk French so that no one understood what kind of uh, deal he got. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it, it, it was, uh, so that was a funny story that, you know, this this little short French guy talks to these guys. And that, that at that point, they, when they found out that Maine had a Franco-American community, that was like... I think they would have paid double for the company. Yeah, home wow. away from home a little bit. Right. And then, yeah. Louis retired the next day. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> right. And Louis drives a Bentley now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, since since buying the company back, you guys have had some other changes in your company, and one of those has been flipping over into an ESOP. Uh, yes. First of all, for for guys in the industry that may not be familiar with that term, could you explain what an ESOP is? Yeah, what is and an then ESOP? Why did you guys decide to go that route? So an ESOP is an employee stock ownership program, and it's it's heavily regulated by the government, by uh, the Department of Labor, because it's it's really a, a well a regulated retirement plan. So, right. um, so it's a process by which a company owner can move the ownership to the benefit of the employees through a trust, and. That process is is fairly well regulated itself. Uh, so, for instance, I have to go get uh, an appraisal, in effect, evaluation on my company, and then that trustee that you that you choose to represent the company gets their own valuation, and then I negotiate with the trustee the fair price uh, for what the company ought to go for, and then I sell the company to that trust, and that trust operates in benefit of all the employees. Wow. And so from a compensation standpoint, your employees are building equity in the company. They are actually getting shares. Yes. So the shares are, the shares are, uh, they're taken care of every year. Uh, and the way the, the way it's broken down is an employee's gross W2 wages, the individual wages are divided by the total company's individual wages. Oh. And then that percentage, it, they multiply that number by the number of shares released uh, each year. So ah, interesting. Okay. That, that, dictate, that dictates how, um, how the number of shares are allocated. So they get shares each year, and then assuming the stock price goes up each year, all those shares, just like an investment in the stock market, your shares are all, they're all the same price. 
uh, based on the last valuation. Yeah. Right. So what did that do for the morale of the company when you did something like that? One, and then two, why as a business owner, instead of just selling it, why would you do something like this? So what it does for the morale, it, it really has no immediate impact on morale. In fact, I would even say uh, initially it may have a little bit of a detrimental impact because um, we set up a pretty, uh, <clears throat> we set up a pretty good meeting for our people on a Saturday and had them come in. And we said, you know, I was very transparent about the whole transaction. And I said, this is not some grand act of generosity by me. I'm asking you guys to pay me for the company. But, <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so it's, it starts at nothing, right? If, if you buy, uh, let's say you guys were my employees mm -hmm. and, uh, and I owned an apartment complex that was worth a million dollars and you guys were the employees. Uh, and I came to you and said, uh, I'm going to do an ESOP. So you're going to be the owners now, but you don't have to pay me anything right now. You, you, you owe me a million dollars for that apartment complex. Yep. So your equity on day one is pretty much zero. Yeah, so, yeah, nothing. But now it's up to you to build the value in that you can pay you can pay down uh, the debt on the on the building on the complex. You can uh, you can increase your rent. You can do things to improve the business, mm -hmm. and and by that you increase the value of of the apartment complex and pay me off. And that's how you begin to build value. So once and you're paid takes, off, then they start putting into their pockets. Yeah, it's so that their their value builds all the time. Mm -hmm. So this first meeting we had, you know, I said this is no grand act of generosity. If everything goes perfectly this year, with the amount of shares the average person will get times the stock price, your value in the company will be one hundred and forty-seven dollars. Mm -hmm. Sold. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I can remember we had a truck driver at the time, and his wife, her head dropped down. She was they were right in front of me. And she looked at him. She said, we took a Saturday to come listen to this that's whole a, shit. That's what I was just about to say is you called him in on a Saturday, too. <laughs> to, yeah. let them, to let them know they owe you more money. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But it's they didn't have to put any money in either. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. You know, but I just wanted to set the right set of expectations for them. And but now uh, that same guy, he left a couple of years later, that same guy would have somewhere around $70,000 in his ESOP account. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> let, let me ask you this. For, I, I've had the pleasure, just just for people listening, I have had the pleasure of, of having a couple conversations with you previous to this interview. Yeah. And so I've really gotten a feel for you are very people-focused. Was, yeah. was your, um, was the idea behind going the way of the ESOP more about you selling the company or was it more the idea of putting that power in the employees' in hands? People. Yeah. So, th so there's a few tentacles to this and I'll, I'll try to be brief with them, but um, you know, so I, I bought the company even, even before I bought the company and combined our companies into one, I said, this is great, but my two children don't have any desire to be in the construction business. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, I love them both dearly and I respect their, you know, their career choices. And so I know I'm, I'm just accumulating this much, much larger company. Now I'm going to have to do something with it someday. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's a big decision. Are, yeah. There are basically, you know, four ways you can 
you can offload a construction company and one is to sell it like they had done before. Mm-hmm. And when, when you do that and what we found is you totally lose control. Yeah. Uh, every, everything that people promise you in situations like that, some, gone. they may come through, but you totally have no control. Over yeah. It's so, all the, all the salesmanship to close the deal. Right. Yeah. So, so there's that. Then uh, you, so you can sell it outside you could sell it to internal people, like you know, three or four managers. But a construction company is a very, very capital-intensive business. Yes, the bonding company wants to know that you're very stable. Yeah, for them to be for them to be willing to write and affect a note that says we'll cover these guys if they fail. Yeah, they got to be pretty assured that you're not going to fail. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's most companies don't have people inside with that kind of capital. Uh, so a third way to, to get rid of a construction company is just to close it and have an auction. And of course that, that doesn't bring any value to anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and it costs a lot of money to close a construction company yeah. because all these projects are ending at different times. And when you tell people we're going to shut down, you know, it's like a sinking ship and all the rats jump. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's not, I mean, while it does happen on occasion, I've seen it happen. It's, it's not the best way to bring the value and it doesn't help the people. Sure. Uh, so, you know, we had a lot of people that had been with a company for 30, 40, 50 years, some 60 plus years. Wow. And <laughs> I really didn't want to see them go through the same thing that happened back in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And so this was really the, the best one uh, that, that I could come up with. Uh, the best strategy and it allowed me to do two different things. Uh, it allowed me to separate the sale of the company so that the ownership succession from management succession. Yeah. So I could still run the company for another 10 to 15 years if I wanted to. And, and the ownership can be taken care of. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, so that was one of the things. And then the other thing, it, it just, it provides a, a ton of stability. ESOP companies, in most cases, don't pay taxes. Oh, really? Right. Interesting. So, so that money. I'm starting one tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that money, uh, you know, stays there and builds for the advantage and the stability of the company in the future, and for the eventual buyout of the of the shareholders when they retire. So it's it's a really. Uh, a, it's it builds value for employees mm-hmm. literally out of thin air. Yeah. Sounds like a win-win all around. Absolutely. It, it, there, there are a lot of great win-win, uh, win-win big companies, Procter and Gamble's and ESOP, uh, you know, so there are a lot of large companies that do it, but it just ticked off so many boxes for us because I wanted to maintain opportunity for our people. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I wanted, you know, I wanted to give them something to work for and I wanted uh, to maximize the potential for financial stability and that, you know, that tax-free nature of the ESOP really does a, a great thing with that. And, you know, we, we didn't have to change our name. We didn't have to, we just stayed us. Yeah. Yep. Now, have you had any employees that were kind of startled at the beginning, but now have walked up to you and said, Thank you Thank for you very looking much. the interest in us. So I, not many people mentioned whether they were starred. They didn't share that information with me, but I've, especially this year, 
uh, as you know, as accounts have approached $100,000, uh, individual accounts, I've had a lot of people contact me and, you know, I'll get a text message with a picture. Uh, we, we finally got it this year. So their ESOP value is on every, every paycheck every week. Yeah. Even though the ESOP, the ESOP value only changes once a year when we allocate shares and, and provide a new, a new share price, but it's on there every week. And it got started to get printed and on there. And I got, you know, pictures, people are te texting me pictures of their pay stubs. Like, I can't believe this. That's awesome. Because what I, what I said up front is this, please don't count on this as your retirement. We still have a 401k plan. We yep. still match the 401k plan. What this is going to be is this is going to augment your retirement. This is just look at this like it's going to be your bass boat. Yeah. And uh, so this year I had somebody uh, send me a text and he said, whoa. Look at my I'm new gonna, bass boat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got some fishing poles yeah. with it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So that is really awesome. So let me ask you this. We're in an industry where everyone widely accepts that people are really viewed as almost pieces of equipment. They're just assets that you churn through. And uh, the industry is very slowly starting to wake up to the fact that that's got to change. That the employees are worth more than just they're just they're, a number. Yeah. Than just, just oh, man yeah. hours. Uh, what has really, I mean, you've clearly thought this way for a long time. What has made you think differently about people? Do you think? I think I, it hit me one time that people aren't human resources. They're human sources. Yeah. And for me, they're sources of sometimes frustration, oftentimes joy, oftentimes brotherhood. They're, they're sources of, of, uh, ability to get things done. And, uh, you know, to me, I, I see them as sources of, of good for so many things. They're, they're sources of value for each other. And that's what we really focused on the last few years is dude, you were, when you bring value, you're floating all boats, you're taking leadership and you are, you're affecting the trajectory of 400 other people and their families. Yeah. And, for people to understand that and to take ownership in that and, and really appreciate the fact that they are having a difference. And when you get 400 people f feeling that way, you know, it, it's, it's just a really cool, um, it's a really cool culture to be involved. It is. In. Yeah. I like it. That is awesome. So when kind of backing up a little bit, when you rebought your grandfather's company and merged the two companies, uh, yes. roughly where were you at from a personnel standpoint and how much have you grown to today? So on, on the, the day we merged the companies, we actually had more employees than we do today. Oh, really? Uh, but they, they had, when they closed down their building operation, they reallocated a lot of those folks into the earthwork business. And, and the first thing we said when we walked in the office is this is not about top line sales. Mm -hmm. And that's what they've been living for years. Top line, top line revenues. And I said, I don't give a shit if, if we do X or if we do 0.8 X or 0.7 X, but we better make money because mm -hmm. yeah. I can't share money. We don't make, yeah. it's more about the bottom line. It's more about the margin. And I had a, I had a main biz. Uh, there's a, an article, uh, a rag they printed here in Maine called main biz. And, 
every year they list out the largest contractors in the state. And we were number two behind wow. Chimbro, who's wow. a, now a national company. Yeah. And, uh, and at that time, I think Chimbro was doing 650 million and we were doing 115 or 20. And it's a lot of work. I, I had all our superintendents in the room and I had that blown up on the screen and I said, see this, the pressure's off. Yeah. We're not going to be the biggest. Yeah. Yeah. The pressure's off. Now let's just be the best. Yeah. Let's focus on that. Um, so a, a long way to answer your question. We, the day we made that transaction, we probably had about 550 people. Okay. Wow. Um, over the course of the next few months, there were a lot of people that needed to go. Um, so we ended up around 425 Wow. Okay. Good. And that's about where we are now. So the beauty of getting to talk to you, uh, especially at this late stage of your career, is you've really run the gauntlet in a lot of ways with your business. Um, you you know you worked for grandfather's company, then you went and started your own company, and then when you went through the the reacquisition of your grandfather's company, through all of that. Um, what would you say has been one of the most challenging things in growing the company overall? I would say um, managing egos. Wow. <laughs> I love that because it's, it's man, that's construction right there. It's just egos. That's <laughs> construction 101. Yes. Yeah, it, 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 really, it's managing egos and, you know, the, and then the work selection, the work acquisition. Mm -hmm. And, and the, you know, you can have a strategy today that seems like it's a, a, a an awesome strategy, mm -hmm. you know, then something like a pandemic hits yeah. <laughs> right? or, 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 a, or a 2008 recession hits. Yeah. yeah. How did you guys, uh, you know, pan out through COVID? How did that change, go for change. you guys to change a lot? What did you, how did you guys work through it? You know, I, I think our morale is better today than it was two years ago. Oh, really? So we'll we, touch on that. We've, We've done a few things that, that, well, number one, we all had to be in it together, right? And yes. That's, yeah. Or else that's, it's that's all going down. We communicated. Um, and I think Brian knows this, but back in March of 2020, uh, we got together on a Saturday. There was me, uh, my CFO and my COO, Tasha and Eric. Uh, and we, we sat down and said, okay, here's, here's what things have to change like immediately. Here's the rules the government's handing out, you know, and we had to give everybody a letter that said they could be on the road on the way to a job, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so we sent an email out to our folks that Saturday and on Monday morning, 90% of the crew didn't know what the hell was going on Wow! because nobody reads their email. <laughs> Especially <laughs> on the weekends. Um, so... We, we felt like we had to find a new way to communicate. Mm -hmm. And I had listened to some podcasts at the time and I said, maybe that's the way to do it. Maybe we can, maybe we can put out a, a weekly podcast just to our people and, you know, tell them it's going to be all right. You know, it's bad, but here's how we're going to make it better. Here's how we're going to protect ourselves. Here's how we're going to protect you. And here's how we're going to move forward. Yeah. And so we, we, I went out and bought a, a, a Rodecaster Pro and, and four microphones and four sets of headphones. And hey, we got to get on your level. <laughs> yeah. We and, only got the, the Roadmaster 2. <laughs> <laughs> we put out a podcast the next week, and we've been doing one every week since. 
That's pretty amazing. Way to use now, your authority, now, though. The percentage of that getting to like how many more people that I get to in your company, or does everybody listen to the podcast now? I, I don't think everybody does. All right. Uh, I was just seeing, like, you know, compared to an email, where did it yeah, get? Well, yeah. Compared to an email, it's it's many fold All greater. Right. All right. So, I th- I think we get about between three hundred and three hundred fifty listens a week wow. out of four hundred. Yeah, nice. I know there are some people outside the company that listen also, some retirees and that sort of thing. Um, no, do you guys think of like using pigeons and like little, like, you know, and <laughs> send them scrolls. out to some of your uh, people that lived out in the outskirts that had no connection to anything? <laughs> well, they, so we text it to them. So right. they get it right on their phone. Yep. And so they can listen. And the, the reasoning was, well, they're not going to read mail if we sound, if we send it. Right. They're not reading email. But if we text this to them and, you know, there's going to be some buzz about it. Right. Sure. And, and they can listen to it on their commute home. They can do a number of different things with it. I found, you know, guys texted me and said, my, my, uh, my daughter and, and my wife and I listen to this on Sunday mornings when we're laying in bed. And uh, this particular guy, we have an, a, an area on the show where people can give each other shout outs. And I had given this guy a shout out. And he was like, I, I can't believe, you know, I've Owner worked all a, over yeah. the world. And I can't believe I finally found Sergeant. So that was that was a really that's awesome. That that um, that's amazing. So so we 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 use that tool. We continue to use it now for you know to to talk about benefits and how they can access their benefits and different things. May was it was ESOP month, Sergeant ESOP month, because our everybody got their statements in May. So we talked about the stock price and the values, and people could email in questions to me about you know, why, why ESOP, a number of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so we use it for a lot of different things, just updates on what's going on where, but so many other different things that we did that, that I just think served to cement us better together. Um, and one thing that it had a, an impact that we, in ways we never would have dreamed it would is we always put our people up. Most of our people travel and we put them up two guys and two people in a hotel room. And of course, in COVID, that was kind of risky. So we backed mm-hmm. down and said, we're going to go one person to a hotel room. And, you know, everybody actually wanted to be at work and not at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What we found later <laughs> I on got my own room that, away from, <laughs> don't got to sleep with Frank what now. Found, what we found in, in the last year and a half, two years is guys were bringing their families on the road with them. Oh, that's cool. Oh, right. Now they didn't have to share a room with some other grunt like me. Yeah. You know, they, uh, they bring their wife and kids and, you know, the place always has a pool, right? The kids are happy. They're on vacation. Yeah. That's cool. It's just, that's just another one of those things that, that we never thought of, but, and plus, you know, the company's done well financially over the last couple of years and, you know, the stock price has gone up significantly. So I'll take all those things together and we're communicating you know, through the podcast much, much more than we ever did before. Yeah. There's there's like nothing they don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That is awesome to hear. Now, obviously you've, you've built this pretty good umpire for everybody on a personal note. Now, as you're getting into the end of the career and you're getting ready to walk away, reflecting back through the whole journey, the whole process, what does this mean to you now as you start transitioning slowly out the, out the door company. as you look back. Um, I'm, I'm just glad that we, 
that we could kind of, I guess, take that legacy that had been started nearly 100 years ago. And I'm glad that I was in a position to be able to do something to to take to kind of take the handoff of that legacy and and reinvigorate it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, not make, not make people proud in a prideful way, but proud in a way that, that makes them really uh, understand what the legacy means and, and, you know, preserve that going forward and the values of that legacy, you know, and, and when we, when we sat down uh, to do strategic planning a while back, we didn't really have a core purpose and values on the wall, but, you know, I wanted to codify that stuff. And, and we, uh, so we asked the question, uh, you know, when Herb started back in 1926, he was plowing snow in a truck that didn't have a windshield. Oh, nice. Uh, Up in Maine, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that, brutal. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, then it was a, he bought a front shovel and he, you know, bought a, a cable dozer and he was just doing small work around and eventually got some highway work uh, and then moved from cable shovels to, to scrapers. And then they were building interstates and then uh, the environmental work came sewer, water, landfill, that sort of stuff. And the hydraulic excavator was born, uh, you know, and, and dozers and that sort of thing. And then a lot of commercial work came, you know, all the big box stores, and now we've got GPS dozers and it's amazing seeing how the things have changed. Yeah. Well, so the the point I made to our team was what we're doing, what we're building now and what we're building it with almost bears no resemblance to what they did when when it started. started. Yeah. Yeah. So they all have windshields. understanding (laughs) Understanding that's the case. What's been the same all that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's been the values. And yeah. so we codified our values. And, and for me, just being able to, to, to take that legacy and, and, and the values that I know carried the company through, you know, a, a great period of growth. Uh, and knowing that the people, you know, when I decide to retire, don't push me out the door yet, guys, okay? <laughs> yeah, when I right. retire, uh, <laughs> you know, knowing the people that are here, the management transition, that you know, I I know this this company is going to be fine. Yeah, I mean everybody every company's got to tend to the business, and and one of our core values is honing our craft. So and we know we have to always be ready to improve. We always have to be uh, very self aware of if we see complaints complacency start to wander in, we mm-hmm. got to stomp that out. Yep. Now with four hundred people. How do you hone your craft? How do you get them all dialed in to be perfectionist? I would say to be a perfectionist would, is, is not what we're looking for. Because for me, when, I, when I'm working on something and trying to do it perfectly, it takes me too it takes, long. Yeah, a long time, yeah. yeah. So, so what we're looking for is... is Borderline mediocrity. <laughs> no, yeah. Okay, construction. It passes inspection. Just bury it. You know what? So our customers buy a product. They specify exactly what it is. Yep. Yeah. And it's our it's our job to provide that product. And 
So, so we do, and we try to do it in the best way we can. The productivity that goes into that is, is really important. And, and we have some tools that we use to try to, to measure what our actual productivity is versus what our, uh, versus what the, the ideal product, the optimal yep. productivity is with a certain piece of equipment. So for instance, with a, a cat 349, if all he did was just feed a conveyor belt dirt, he could probably move 10,000 yards a day. 12,000 yeah. yards a day. Um, but, but we, we introduce uh, breaks in that by having trucks move in and out and that sort of stuff. So, so we had tools that we use to try to, to try to find the bottlenecks so that we keep that machine moving all the, the time. The most efficient. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. all about efficiency. And, yeah, and, and that's not any different than, I mean, that's no secret in the industry, right? That's what every that's company what keeps everybody doing. going. Yeah. So it's the cultural question of how you, the, that, and that's the question you ask. How do you get 400 people to do that? Yep. It's a cultural question of what's in it for them. Yeah. And, and now they have a way to very clearly see the value that, that, that right, that there's a value to them. Yeah. And in, 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 in a way that it's kind of like, I, I don't even think I'd ever not want to be an ESOP again. Yeah. Interesting. I, I I just like this so much. Interesting. Very interesting. So it does occur to me, we've been talking about Sargent Corporation this whole time, but I don't think we've really talked about what you guys do yeah. specifically. What do you guys do? Yeah, what than, kind of projects you know. are you working on? Uh, we we work on really anything that requires excavation. So um, a lot of landfill work uh, across Maine, New Hampshire, and Virginia. Uh, we have a couple projects in North Carolina this year. And we were in and out of North Carolina, some same with Maryland. Um, so we do a lot of landfill work, a lot of airport work, a lot of highway work, utility work. We've been, gotten into wind power projects uh, on the mountaintops here in Maine. They, they like to place the wind power turbines up there. So we've got that. And interesting. So how is it dealing with the logistics of getting all that, the, parts and pieces to those windmills up the mountainside oh that's a I, luckily for me, we don't have to do it all right this. so you guys just get the the foundations done for them and then they come in and do the erecting we, we build the infrastructure for right. them to get access gotcha to gotcha interesting but uh, it is significant because they have to get offloaded at a port yeah and, and those that, things are what 150 foot yeah, long per crazy. per per fan or wing or wow. fin or whatever yeah. they want to blade so we have to go, we have to map out the route that they have to take. And, you know, there's a lot of corners that they can't make. So we have to widen the corners out for them to be able to make it around. So we do a lot of that work, but we don't do any of the trucking at all. Gotcha. So let's yeah. talk for a second, because one of the things that's been going all over social media that, that you personally sent me in an email because it was so freaking cool is that beast of an excavator you guys built. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to do you yeah. want to tell everyone about that? Yeah, we call it Frankenho. It's freaking Franken awesome. Huh? <laughs> it is awesome. It's so uh, we we have a project in Portland, Maine, uh, on the bay, and it's this project is putting in huge box culverts together hmm. to form one huge tank. So each end of it gets a like a cap on the end, and uh, so we've got a about a thirty foot wide excavation that has to be sheeted and braced. And we have to be able to get back over that because we can't get the long reach won't 
won't reach everything we have to do. So we took the side frames off a of Cat 336 and we put it on beams and widened it out so it's wow. 35 wide. And so that, that machine, I was just on that project yesterday and it, it's just so neat to watch it work because he's, he's literally straddling over a 25 foot deep hole. This is amazing. I'm, I'm looking it up right now. Well, and on top of that, and you also got to be careful what you click on when you put in Frank. <laughs> so, well, on top of that, right video, in order to go as deep as you guys are, you have a, another stick coupled to the yes. original stick on like everything about this machine is nuts. <laughs> now, is this proprietary uh, to Sergeant? Or no, do, or really, can't build this for you guys? No, no, we built it. We did it ourselves. In right. the well, that was going to be my next question on something that like that's a pretty complicated project. Yeah, I feel like there's some engineering that has to take place. You can't just kind of throw your thumb up in the air and go, yeah, I think two beams will be enough to hold it. And then you go, <laughs> who's going to run it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It was interesting. We had you know, one, one of the guys had seen this a picture of one of these somewhere online. And so one of our operators, and he mentioned it to our guys. And I, I'm, I'm so proud of this process because. It's so uh, innovative. It, like what you guys do. Well, with that. it's, it's there. They are. They feel safe bringing these things up. You know, a lot of, a lot of companies you bring up an idea and you go, that's a stupid idea. Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. not going to put a track 35 feet wide. What do you think? Yeah. It looks like yeah. it's doing so, the splits. <laughs> right. So our guys, uh, the guys, our superintendent and our area manager got together and approached us about it. And I said, well, what we need to do is bring the operators in here that have talked this over, bring them in on a Friday afternoon and talk it over with them. And, uh, you know, when we got done talking, we'll open a six pack of beer and, and so we brought them in and they were like, yeah, yeah, you know what? Okay, let's try it. And, you know, without that buy-in from those guys, I, we probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah. yeah. So, and, oh, go ahead. Well, you, you mentioned that it's got another stick on it. So we, you may probably have never heard of, of a product called Wimmer. And they're a bucket manufacturer over in Austria. And we used to do a lot of business with them, or we still do. But back in 2008, I made a deal with them to uh, construct their buckets and couplers in, in Maine. And uh, so, so we're the Wimmer importer and manufacturer. So Interesting. We, we, have these, we have these couplers uh, that we, we just made it one on a different stick. So, so we have a coupler that grabs onto a stick that then grabs onto another bucket. And so when your operator is running this thing, it, I'm assuming you are are totally bypassing the original bucket curl point, that knuckle, and you're only curling the bottom bucket? Is is yeah, that? They, they all curl. Oh, um, do they really? So he's actively yeah. using all of those points. Yeah. It's like a three three knuckle. Yeah. Yeah. But Correct. I would have thought you would have had to bypass one in order to to use the bucket out on the end. But you're actually, you've got them all active. Now, did you have to yes. do anything different with the cab and the hydraulics to make all this functionable? I can't remember exactly if we just used the hammer circuit to, to run that stick. Interesting. Uh, yeah. That is cool. <laughs> it's pretty, it's mind-boggling. It's really, really cool. So, by the way, yeah, for I'm, those listening, dieselandironproductions.com, when, when this episode goes live, we will have a picture of the Frankenhoe up there for you to look at. Now yeah, what, we get some pretty good videos of it, too. Yeah, now, what, it was it, what was it like tracking this thing out, giving it the first go round, round like, here we go? Well, we, we did it in the yard at, at, 
at the shop first because we didn't want to get it all the way to Stillwater. I mean, all the way to Portland and and, and go oops. It, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we had a strict no social media. Uh, yeah. Don't want to watch the moratorium. fail. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we, we got it down. We First, we tried it out in Stillwater at our shop. Then we moved it down and, uh, you know, went to work and it, it worked well. It's, it's really just been a, it's, it's been a fun project. The whole thing, our, our team, I'm just so proud of our team. And, and, you know, our guys are pretty creative anyways, and they take the initiative to, to, to move the needle towards saving money for our, for our customers. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in doing what we did here, we shortened the amount of box culvert on that project and saved the city of Portland a million dollars. Oh, Wow. wow. Interesting. Now, did you guys drive those piles, the sheet piles in first and then dig once those were in done? Or did you guys dig and then put them in and dig and put them in? No, and, we drive them first. All right. Gotcha. All right. And and then it's like so making a, a coffer dam or something like that. Setup. Yeah. We got a 336 cat set up with a hammer. And so he drives the cells first and then our, the Franken hoe goes and excavates down and we have to put some bracing inside. All right. And if you see some of the videos online, I think they're on our Sergeant YouTube. Yeah, I got page. it going right now. It's just, yeah. it's, it's awesome. You, you can see there's an amazing amount of bracing yes. in there that we have to work around. Um, and then we have a a gantry crane that brings the boxes in and sets them down in the hole. Very cool. Yeah, those box culvert sections yeah. are massive. <laughs> huge. And I don't know if you, I, you caught on what he was saying. He, they're creating an underground reservoir. This isn't going to be an actively flowing area necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's a reservoir to hold water. Right. Yep. Very interesting. So what it's for is a combined sewer overflow project. So when the city of Portland, they don't necessarily have separate sewer and stormwater. So all their sewer and stormwater has to go or everything that gets into the sewer system has to go to the treatment plant. Yeah, treatment before it's dumped out into the wonderful lake yeah, or ocean. The, the treatment plant can't handle all the flow when there's a heavy rain event. Mm-hmm. And so for years, it's just gone into Back Bay. And so what these were doing, this Don't project- Don't go swimming that day. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you see people windsurfing out there and it's like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> and all that crab leg go across all of that, America. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So that's what this project is for: is to retain all that, all that stormwater. Very cool. Until the rain recedes, and then it gets pumped over to the pump to the uh, treatments plant. All right. So that that's project being right there on the bay, are you guys having a lot of uh, a lot of water infiltration that you're fighting, or or with the the material you're working in, is it staying pretty dry? It's it's been pretty good. Some of it's rocks, so we're having a drone blast. Some. Oh wow. It, and but it's clay over the rock, which is why we have to have such robust sheeting and mm-hmm. bracing. Yeah. So the clay doesn't let much water uh, in. Gotcha. I'm not saying we have no water, but sure. it's yeah, yeah. It's pretty minimal. We don't have to have well points or anything. Yeah. Hey guys, Brian here. Just wanted to let you know we're gonna split this episode into two parts because we have something special in store for you at the end of the episode. So this did run a little long, but it does give you something to look forward to next week. I hope you enjoyed the first half of the interview with Herb Sargent. Join us next week as we finish out this interview. You guys have a great week.